Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Um, today, we are joined by Teresa Torres. She is uh, just an amazing product leader in the space. She's written a book called Continuous Discovery Habits that we're going to talk a little bit about. And uh, she's also the uh, CEO co-founder, maybe is that the title for Product Talk and yeah, <laughs> Product yeah, Coach, I've, right? Yeah. I've been a CEO and I think people <laughs> put too much weight into that title. So I don't use it for Product Talk, uh, but I'm the owner of Product Talk. And the founder, if you will. Love it. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm joined with Zach here as well. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, um, you know, I'd love to kick off the conversation a little bit. Um, We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into discovery. And I have so many questions and I know Zach does too, but to kick things off, um, I'm very curious. I know, I know you kind of get hired to do uh, some sort of discovery transformation times with, with companies. And I know you have a lot of trainings and what have you, but for smaller companies that are growing fast, are there any particular foundations that you like to put in place to build that discovery muscle? Yeah. So I don't work like most consultants. So the consulting industry is enormous. A lot of people focus on training. I do focus on training, but I do it in a, in a pretty different way. Um, first thing is I focus entirely at the individual contributor and product trio level. Um, so I try to avoid the messiness of sort of the organizational change, the executive leader evolution. I mean, all of that is really important, uh, but I really love working with product people. I love working with product teams who have read the books and read the blogs and been in the conferences, um, but have never had an opportunity to work this way um, and really want to learn and really want to upskill. Um, and so traditionally, I was brought into a company by a head of product and I would coach product trios. Over the last couple of years, my model has changed. I've actually invested a lot in online courses. Um, a lot of that is because I want to have a product that any individual can decide. Um, hey, I want to invest in my own skills. Um, whereas coaching is usually cost prohibitive if your company is not paying for it. Um, so today, I mostly teach online courses. Um, and then I also run a membership program, which I, the way that I look at it is it's a, it's like a group coaching. It's like coaching at scale at a very affordable price point. Um, and that is a ton of fun because I really do just get to hang out with product people all day, every day. That's awesome. And then just to add on to that, I guess, in, in the context of this question about the, the foundation, so what sounds like trio, a product trio is core to that foundation of being able to then have you come and coach them up on these uh, these types of habits? Is that yeah? So historically, I coached a product trio. So a product trio is a product manager, a designer, and a software engineer. I think it's actually really important that um, when you're training your teams that they train together because a lot of the learning with discovery is how do we make joint team decisions, and all, we even replicate that um, with our online courses. So even if you're an individual and you want to take a class. Um, All our classes are team-based and we're just trying to teach you how to collaborate as a team and how to make evidence-based decisions as a team. And I think that, um, you know, we all think we're team players, but most of business is siloed um, by function and we still do need to learn how to collaborate and really make good team decisions. So that's a big part of what we focus on. I've definitely seen that as a challenge where one person from like a product trio or even a quad, if you have like analytics in the loop, one of them goes to a conference or learns something exciting. They come back invigorated and ready to like try and fit that into their works, their work process. Um, But that can often clash or just not fit in with how everybody else is working. Um, And so I think kind of bringing the whole team along for the ride makes a lot of sense. I I kind of have a follow-up question is like, as you're going in to start working with one of these teams, are there any like prerequisites that the teams need to have in place for this to, to work? Or are there any, like ever any times where they need to change something ahead of time for this process to be able to successfully be implemented? I strongly believe that every individual in a company in companies has more uh, agency to work this way than they think. Um, and that belief comes from the fact that I never worked at a company where we had top-down leadership around um, good discovery. I just found ways to do it. Um, and I know, I've worked with enough teams in really tough environments to know that there are legitimate obstacles, but I want people to feel empowered to overcome those obstacles, regardless of what happens 
across the rest of the organization. Because the challenge with organizational change, and this is why I start, I try to stay away from the digital transformation side of things, is that organizations only change when every single individual within that organization changes. And the challenge is all of those individuals are going to change at different rates. And you're going to go through this really messy period where your organization is kind of a disaster while it's waiting for everybody to catch up and kind of go in the same direction. And if that's what you're waiting for, it's going to happen at a way slower pace than you want. And you don't really have to wait for that, right? Like the fundamentals of discovery is just go spend time with your customer. And everybody has the ability to do that on some scale. So it's really about finding the smallest piece you can just start doing right away and then keep iterating to improve it over time. I love that. And then you you touch on the definition of continuous discovery, but for the audience, can you kind of, how do you best describe what that is? Yeah. So in my book, so first I'll distinguish discovery from delivery. That's how we often talk about discovery. Discovery is the work we're doing to decide what to build. And then delivery is the work that we're doing to ship, um, to build, ship, and maintain a production quality product. So on the discovery side, there's two major trends that we're seeing. One is that we're recognizing the customer should be involved in those discovery decisions. Um, And two, we're seeing a shift from a project mindset to a continuous mindset. Um, And that's really being driven by this recognition that digital products are just never done. Um, So in my book, I define continuous discovery as at a minimum weekly touch points um, with customers by the team building the product where they're conducting small research activities in pursuit of a desired product outcome. And there's a lot there. The idea is this simple. The product trio themselves need to have direct access with customers. When they're engaging with customers, they need to adopt specific research strategies that are more sustainable and more continuous than our old project methods. And we need to make sure that everything we're doing is in service of our outcome because that's how we're aligning customer value with business value. That's awesome. That yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And getting getting individual contributors or just anybody in the company to have kind of the mindset of how can we talk to the customer more regularly? Like how do we just start building these muscles? I think is a really good exercise for the company, but also just from a career standpoint of like building the general muscle of doing that because it's it's one of those things that's easy to say but really hard to keep up with. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think that's that's really important. Um, what are what are some of the things you found that help like start teams to start to build this muscle as they're kind of getting used to these these frameworks? Yeah, I see a lot of people like in the in an employee context. I see a lot of employees default to waiting for permission. Um, and here's the reality: like you're not going to get in trouble for talking to somebody. And most organizations, and I'll give some examples. Like. Yes, I get it that at a lot of companies, your sales team wants to own the sales relationship. They don't want you talking to a customer. But I coached a team where their end users were doctors and nurses, and they were really struggling to go through company channels to talk to clinicians. And so in one of our coaching calls, I just said, look, there's three of you. Do any of you have any doctors or nurses in your personal network? And literally every single one of them did. And I was like, okay, well, why don't we just start there? And then here's the magic of that. Every doctor or nurse that you talk to knows other doctors and nurses, right? And so we tend to like get stuck in this rut of like, I have to follow the company procedure, but nobody is going to get mad at you. Like the product manager on that team had an uncle who was a doctor. Like his company's not going to get mad at him for talking to his uncle about how he badges into work, right? And that's what they did. They made badges for hospital workstations. Like he can go learn about a customer really easily, but we make these like made up rules in our head about what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. So I think the first thing is just remember, like we're just talking about people and odds are there's people in your personal network, like your customers. And that's a really easy way to start. Um, And then the second part of it is, yeah, overall your sales team may not want you to have access to customers, but you probably could find one sales rep that you're friends with and sit in on one of their meetings, right? So it's this idea of how do we make it a teeny tiny problem so we can get a foot in the door. And then once you've had that first conversation, start to look at the second and the third and the fourth. And eventually you can start thinking about how do I automate this process and how do I make it really easy to find people to talk to week after week? Well, let's talk about that then. I would love to hear that. Like, What, what uh, tools... 
do you use to automate some of this feedback? Like, you know, I've also experienced like feedback rivers, for example, of like this continual stream of information within channels that you can kind of, uh, especially like for consumer facing products, you have this, a lot of feedback with a lot of customers mm-hmm. using the product. And so it can be very, uh, challenging to kind of, um, read everything, but then you can yeah. kind of potentially highlight specific words and like kind of, you know, so, so what, what, what tools have you seen work really well for that? So the first thing is I do think product teams should pay attention to that inbound feedback. Um, I think that's actually really important, but I want you to think about it as inspiration for what to explore in your interviews. And the reason for that is that inbound feedback is missing a lot of context, right? So when a customer complains about something, we don't get to hear about what were they doing, what was their goal, um, what were the mitigating circumstances that led to that problem. We usually just hear about the problem. So I like to think about all those inbound channels, and that even includes like user behavioral analytics as just inspiration for what I need to go learn about in an interview. Because it's only in an interview that we can collect all that environmental context and 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 um, where we start to see the bigger picture around those needs and those pain points. And then we now have really great tools for one of the things that makes interviewing continuously challenging is that we can't hustle every week to find an interview. So one of the big concepts in the book is you have to automate your recruiting process. And one of the easiest ways to do this is to recruit people while they're using your product or service. This is becoming a lot more common. So you may have even seen it on some products and services. It's just as you like go to a website and you're using it, maybe embedded in the page somewhere, maybe it's a pop-up, maybe it's included in an email newsletter somewhere. It's just an ask to participate in an interview. And it's usually paired with some type of incentive. And then what that does is it allows the customer to opt in when it's relevant to them, when they have time, when they're motivated. Um, And then um, you can pair that with scheduling software um, so that you don't have to do the back and forth and it literally just ends up on your calendar. And the goal there is you're making interviewing easier to do it than to not do it, right? Like it's already on your calendar. You just have to show up. In fact, if you didn't want to do it, you would have to email that customer and say, I'm sorry, I have to cancel this. So what happens is when we make it easier to do it than to not do it, we start to get a really sustainable habit. I really like that. And that, that idea that you automate it. So it shows up on your calendar and now there's more incentive to go through with it than not, because I think personally, that's how I'd feel is like, well, I don't want to cancel on this, like this customer I've set up time with, they're taking time out of their day to talk with me and give feedback. It would, you know, I would have to have something really important, like, you know, like urgent come up because otherwise it feels like I'm not doing a good job, like helping our customers. So I, I like that idea a lot. Um, I, yeah, I I would love to hear a little bit more about um, kind of uh, some of the structure of like these actual conversations uh, that you, you coach teams of like how to get started. Cause I think one of the things I've seen personally and with like product managers that I've, I've managed and mentored is kind of this fear of like, well, how do I talk to someone I don't know, someone I'm not comfortable with? Um, there's a lot of uncertainty and maybe initial awkwardness around that. I would love if you have any thoughts or tips on that. Yeah, I see a few things. I think we make it bigger than it is. So at its core, an interview is just a conversation with another human. It's not that different from talking to your friend at a bar, right? Um, however, to... Uh, get reliable feedback, we have to think a little bit about what are the right types of questions to ask. And one of the biggest mistakes I see teams make is they're ground their interview in their product. So the interview is taking place in the solution space. What do you think of my product? How how do you use my product? That type of interview, it's going to get you optimization feedback, maybe. And I say maybe because odds are a lot of that feedback is going to be unreliable. But let's say best case scenario, it's going to get you feedback on how to optimize your product. I actually think there's better ways to get that feedback, and we can talk about that in a minute. I think the real value of an interview is it's an opportunity to learn about your customer, who they are, what they're trying to do, where they do those things. And so I really encourage teams to keep the interview grounded in the opportunity space and to really ask for stories. Tell me about the last time you were doing this thing. What were you trying to accomplish? What tools did you use? Maybe my tool was one of them, but I'm less concerned about that. And I'm more concerned about give me the bigger context. And I think that gives us um, sort of the nuance we need to know how our product fits in their world. 
And then when it's time to explore the solution space, we have much better tools for that, like our behavioral analytics are a good measure of what are they doing and how are they doing it. And then, of course, assumption testing is a great way to evaluate, hey, I have this new thing I'm working on. Is it going to work the way that I expected? What about, so, so to talk about more of that, the, the framework that you, you're, you're, you put together in this book, um, can you speak more about the opportunity solution tree and then, you know, how, how it's used in this context? Yeah. So the opportunity solution tree is a visual uh, that's designed to help a team um, find the best path to their outcome. So it starts with this idea of um, we're starting from an outcome. And this is becoming more common in the industry. Um, I recognize pretty early on from coaching teams that most product teams, the bulk of their employee experience, they were not asked to deliver outcomes. They were asked to deliver outputs. Um, what I mean by that is they were given a fixed roadmap. Somebody else was deciding what to build and they were just responsible for the how, right? Build this solution, you go figure out how. And that was sort of where most product trios started. Well, as we shift from an output focus to an outcome focus, we're now telling teams, look, you have some autonomy. We're going to empower you to figure out what to build. We just need you to have this impact. And that impact is measured by this outcome. The challenge that is, is, is if most teams have never done that before, they don't know how to drive an outcome. And so the opportunity solution tree was designed to just give some structure, like how do we do this? So you start with an outcome. An outcome is just a metric. So I often use Netflix in my examples because literally every human on the planet has access to Netflix, um, just about. And uh, if we look at Netflix and say, okay, there's probably a team focused on subscriber retention. That's an outcome. It's a number, it's a metric that we can move. And if you have a product team focused on that, the next step is, okay, let's go learn about our customer's experience. Let's go map out the opportunity space. And the opportunity space is just what are the unmet needs, pain points, and desires that our customers have that if we addressed those would have the potential to drive that outcome. And so what an opportunity solution tree is, is it's just a tree diagram that allows you to put the outcome at the root and then your opportunities map out as you branch down, and then you can map solutions directly to those opportunities. And it does two things. It keeps everything aligned and makes sure that everything that you build addresses a customer need or pain point, so you're creating customer value. And it ensures that you're doing that in a way that will drive your outcome, which usually represents business value. The other thing that it does is with that branching tree structure, we're turning opportunity, big opportunities into smaller and smaller opportunities. And so an opportunity is a pain point. And so if I stick with my Netflix example, a common pain point on Netflix is I can't find something to watch. We're not going to solve that in a week or two. That's an evergreen opportunity that Netflix is going to work on forever. But I can deconstruct it and find smaller and smaller opportunities. So I can ask, okay, well, how do people decide what to watch? Some people might decide to wa what to watch by asking like, is this show any good or do I have friends that have watched this show or is it like something I've watched before? And so if we dig into like, is this show any good? How do people make that decision? Well, they might want to know who's in the, who's in the show. Um, so we, as we get smaller and smaller, we start to get to chunks of work that are small and iterative. So like Netflix can pretty easily show you who's in a show. That's probably not a three month long project. That's probably a week or two of work. And so the advantage of mapping the opportunity space is we can take these big, hard, evergreen problems and turn them into iterative pieces of work that we can tackle. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm curious, like as you work with teams that maybe are, are not as familiar working in the outcome versus the output space, and maybe, you know, we talked earlier about how Sometimes organizationally, maybe they're not set up to enable these types of successes either. How do you get teams started using things like this, uh, this kind of solution tree and kind of breaking down evergreen problems, even if maybe the organizational structure doesn't represent, uh, you know, how they're trying to approach these problems across the board? Does that make sense? Yeah. So a lot of teams are still starting with a fixed roadmap. So what does discovery look like in that world? I think in a lot of ways, we have to start with where our organization is at. So if I'm, if I'm being given a fixed roadmap, I'm individually, first of all, I can story map those solutions. I can generate assumptions. I can test assumptions. Inevitably, you're going to find problems with those solutions. All, every single solution on earth starts 
in a problematic space and needs to be evolved and improved, right? So no matter what is on that roadmap, you're going to encounter faulty assumptions. And when you do, that's a really good opportunity to go back to your stakeholders and say, hey, as we are exploring building this, we learned some new things. Given those new things, we have some suggestions for some alternatives. And actually, we could expand on these alternatives if you would help us understand, like, what was the impetus for this solution in the first place? Help me understand the customer need. So we're working backwards to uncover the opportunity. Inevitably, what happens, because we often solve the wrong problems, we evolve our solutions, we build something, it didn't have the expected impact. Again, that's an opportunity to go back to our stakeholders and say, hey, we built this thing because we thought it would solve this problem. Is it just that it didn't solve that problem? Or is it maybe that we were solving the wrong problem? And if it's that we were solving the wrong problem, like what else should we be looking at? And then that allows you to kind of work backwards to start mapping out the opportunity space. Um, As an individual, you can think through your product's business model and start to make some guesses at what the outcomes are that matter to your company, even if your company isn't outcome focused. You individually can still be outcome focused and start to make some guesses, right? And you also individually can start talking to customers and do that top-down mapping of the opportunity space. And the more you work bottom-up and top-down, the more you're going to start this, paint this clear picture of the whole thing, again, regardless of how your organization is working. I love yeah. that that bottom up transformation. Uh, that, that's awesome because we've been that has been a topic of ours um, for the last couple uh, uh, podcasts of just you know this product led transformation, getting folks out of that feature sales driven mindset to the you know the product led discovery mindset, and and how how different it is, and kind of how scary it is as an organization to make that leap. But it yeah. sounds like you know tackling it both ways, um, and eventually getting to that that space. Um, that, that, that's awesome. That's good. Uh, I, I, I have one. Get, oh, go ahead. The, the one <clears throat> I would love to hear like a specific story to, to make all of this more tangible for our listeners is like, what is one specific time that you were invited to an organization to coach, you know, a, a trio and change that mindset from this bottom up approach. And then like, is, was there a specific story that you can, that you recall of like that, this being a success for that trio and their product? Yeah. So usually when I coach a team, I'm bring I'm, I'm brought in by the head of product, right? So there's already executive support. So usually those teams already have an outcome. A lot of times they've never, um, Like they individually don't have a strong outcome mindset yet. They certainly, a lot of them haven't talked to customers yet. Um, But usually like they're not individually hiring me as a coach. So they already have leadership support. Where I see a lot of this challenge of like, hey, I'm an individual and I work in a company that I literally am starting with a fixed roadmap is from our course students. So that's like we have an individual product manager, designer, engineer. They just sign up for a course. They learn about this process. And they say, well, what do I do if my company doesn't work this way? So in the case that they do, like, was there a one in particular that you can speak to that, like, like you were hired by a head of product, you coach this team and you can, you can keep the names of the companies out if that's okay. But, or, you know, if you're comfortable with that, but is there an example you can point to of like how this actually had a difference in the work that they were doing? Yeah. I mean, there's tons of examples. So one of the ones that I shared in the book is this is about Simply Business. They're an insurance company based in the UK. Their customers are small business owners. Um, and they, they provide, like I think, liability insurance. And they asked a team to go look at, like, what are some adjacent markets? What are other services we could offer small business owners? That's a really wide, that's almost an entrepreneurial challenge right? And a lot of product teams don't have experience with that, right? Like they're full-time employees. They haven't started products from scratch. They haven't, certainly not with like a remit that that's, that, that is that broad of like, we have this customer segment, small business owners. We don't even have a theory of a value proposition. It just needs to be somewhat related to like, we have a foothold, foothold in this customer segment, right? That's awesome. Um, and that team was actually one of the most fun teams I've worked with. They were, um, they really just embraced this process um, they started interviewing. Um, they they did a handful of interviews very quickly so that they could start to map out the opportunity space. And the story that I included in the book about them is they identified this opportunity that they heard over and over again, which is as they interviewed small business owners, 
One of the pain points a small business owner will tell you about is a lot of companies don't want to pay their invoices. People that have never had to invoice a company don't realize this, but like procurement teams are actively working to not pay your invoice. Um, And so they heard this come up over and over again of like, it's a really big pain to chase down collections, these unpaid late invoices. And so the team started to, to like investigate like what kind of solutions could we offer in this space? And remember, they're an insurance company. Like they didn't have any experience with these types of solutions. And they actually found three very different but compelling solutions. There's um, a, a product company they could have partnered with that would do this automatic follow-up and like tack on fees for every month it's late. I forget what their three individual solutions were, but they came up with three very unique and differentiated solutions. And they story mapped them and they broke down the assumptions and they went to test. I think one of, I think their assumptions, some of their solutions were pretty complex. And so their first set of assumptions were simply our customers will understand how this solution works, (laughs) right? So like it's a pretty complex space and they were just trying to test like comprehension And across all three of their first assumption tests, so one assumption for each of their three solutions, um, that every single participant they tested with, so about 15 people across three different assumption tests, said something like, yes, late invoices is a strong pain point for me, but I don't want a third party to help me with it. Right? So like, it had nothing to do with their solutions. They got black and white feedback that, hey, Yes, this is a really strong pain point for us, but we don't want your help. And the reason why was because they don't want a third-party service reaching out to their clients because they're worried about, it's a small business. They don't want like, they're not sending a collection agency after their clients. They want to like maintain that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so um, they learned pretty quickly that even though this was a pain point that came up in their interviews over and over again, it wasn't a pain point they could solve. And so they had to abandon it. And I love this story for a few reasons. They did this team did a fantastic job interviewing. They did a fantastic job opportunity mapping. But the reality is interviewing is just generative, right? It's helping us understand our customer's context. Assumption testing is evaluative. That's really where the rubber hits the road and we start to learn, can we solve this opportunity? Um, Can we be a player in this space? And a lot of teams only interview And they end up building the wrong stuff because they don't catch these instances where even though it is a pain point, it's not a pain point you can solve. It's not a pain point your customer is going to pay you for, or they only assumption test. And when we only assumption test, we run a lot of experiments that are for solutions that are solving the wrong problems. Um, And so I think that story really um, captures the need for both. Now, that's not this like wild success story of they uncovered this amazing product, brought in millions of dollars in revenue to their company, but it is a story of they easily could have partnered. And before going through coaching, they probably would have partnered with this company to offer this service to their small business owners, which the business development on that is a lot of work. The contracting on that is a lot of work. The, not to mention the development to integrate the products and services is a lot of work. And then it would have just been a dud. So they may not have generated millions of dollars in new revenue, but they certainly saved their company a lot of money. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a really valuable thing for companies to keep in mind that often is not top of mind is like that opera, like not just opportunity cost, like the cost of going down the wrong path too far without stopping yourself as soon as possible. And so I really like how in this example, they tested those assumptions because I've Mm -hmm. been in experiences as a product manager where you get some really insightful feedback that's really powerful and motivating and you run off and you start building stuff for months or even years to learn that it, it really doesn't quite fit the needs. And I think one of the things this really drives home is this idea that you can get some really great feedback, not just about solutions a customer is looking for, but about problems they have. But if you don't get enough context as to the whole story of like what they're trying to do and, and why and how they interact with the world as they're going about this, um, you can easily draw the wrong assumption and try and solve something that's just not going to work. And so I, yeah. I think that's a, that's a fantastic example. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit more about 
um, assumption testing. So I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of interviewing customers. It's something I've done a bunch. Um, how, like, what are some of the steps to build in the discipline of like testing assumptions in combination with, uh, kind of the general interview process? Like how do you coach teams to start doing that successfully? Yeah. So the first thing is you have to see your assumptions and that, that sounds trivial, but it's not, we have a lot of blind spots. So I think there's a couple ways to think about this. Um, I shared in the book five categories for assumptions. Four of them mapped to Marty Kagan's risk categories, and then I added a fifth one. I I like to think about it as categories of assumptions to remind you to test your assumptions. So if I tell you to test desirability of risk, how do I do that? Whereas if I help you identify your desirability assumptions, now we can map that very clearly to an assumption test. So I did change the language from like common industry vernacular, but for a very intended purpose. So the five categories are desirability. Why do you, why are you assuming people want this viability? Why are you assuming it's good for your business? Feasibility. Is it possible? Uh, usability. Why are you assuming your customers will find it, understand it, be able to use it? And then ethical. Um, why are you assuming there isn't potential harm in building the solution? Um, knowing those categories will help, but it's not enough. So one thing I've learned through a lot of trial and error is to have people story map their ideas. And then you can just walk through your story map step by step and say what needs to be true in order for a customer to, to take this action. And then that can help you generate a lot of assumptions. And if listeners aren't familiar with story mapping, it's just this idea of assume your solution already exists and map out what your customer has to do to get value from it. So um, a common example I use is let's say that Netflix decided to go after this opportunity, I want to watch live sports. And one of their potential solutions is let's integrate live feeds of TV channels that show sports, right? So maybe they're going to partner with ESPN and show a live feed of what's on ESPN and Netflix. So what does a customer have to do to get value out of this? First, they have to know, they have to want to watch a game. They have to choose a streaming service. They have to open that service. They have to choose the TV channel, and then they have to watch the game. So that's sort of my high-level story map. Now I can walk through each step of that and say, what needs to be true? So what needs to be true for my subscriber to decide to watch the game? Well, first, they have to be a sports fan. What needs to be true for them to choose Netflix? They have to want to watch sports on Netflix. And this is a critical one because I might be a Netflix subscriber and a sports fan, but maybe I already have ESPN plus and I don't need another solution, right? Then I have to um, know that the game is on ESPN. So in this model, I have to know what channel the game is on. And if I don't, I'm sort of stuck. So that's another assumption. We have to be able to partner with that channel. So there's sort of a viability assumption there. Um, then when I'm watching the show, um, you have to be able to create a nice streaming experience for me. And if any listeners are sports fans and watch over the top sports, I find a lot of problems with this. I'm a big hockey fan. And one of the things that a lot of streaming services do is they always tell you how long the recording is. And if there's hockey fans, this is a major problem. If the recording is three and a half hours long, I know the game went into overtime and you just ruined the game for me, Right. And if you don't think about like the sports viewing experience, you miss little details like that. There's also this uh, feasibility challenge of when you're watching a TV show or a movie on Netflix and you have a slow internet connection, Netflix has amazing technology to buffer it so that you don't notice, right? And if you're five minutes behind on your movie, nobody cares. But if you're five minutes behind on a football game and your buddy texts you about the touchdown, again, this game was ruined for you. So when we go step-by-step step through our story map, we can start to ask what needs to be true for my customer to be able to take this step or for it to be a really amazing experience. And teams don't get specific enough. They always say things like, well, customers want this. No, what do they specifically need? What do you need them to do? Are they willing to do that? Are they able to do that? So that's desirability and usability. Can we create a great experience? That's feasibility. Um, do, can we partner with who we need to partner with? So there's a lot of ways, like it, with assumption testing, the core, the heart of it is to put in the time to generate those very specific assumptions. So with, with um, 
so this is all a part of the discovery process and and there's some great tools and tricks and tips here in in it and direction but what what do you also like more practically with these trios as they're going through this discovery process are they are they are they balancing that with delivery like is it is it half and half like is there a specific ratio do you see teams just solely focused on discovery and then moving to delivery like what was your what what's the recommendation or experience with that yeah, there's a lot of bad models around this. So some people think about it as phases, like first I do discovery, then I do delivery. That's not very continuous, right? Because we're doing discovery and delivery always. Um, we also have this term dual track agile. I have problems with that term. A lot of people think about it as um, two teams or they think about it as discovery is just ahead of delivery. I think when you get really good at continuous discovery, there is no longer a distinction between discovery and delivery. And here's why. First of all, to, to discover opportunities, at all you need to do is do one or two interviews a week. Is that really like taking up a lot of your time? If you've automated the recruiting process, no, it should not, right? So that's just a thing that we're doing. I don't need to put a label on it or call it a track or call it a phase. It's just something I'm always doing, right? When we look at assumption testing, I actually think assumption testing is the beginning of delivery. We're starting to build things, even if they're just surveys, but we're starting to build things to figure out, is this the right thing? And in our early rounds of assumption testing, we might be doing prototypes and surveys and data mining. But in our successive rounds, we're probably doing live production tests. A live production test requires delivery. And if we take a true MVP mindset, we're getting to like... Delivery starts with early assumption tests, and then it's just iterative. So I think when you truly adopt a continuous mindset, there is no distinction between those two things. Really so it like doesn't that. like, it, yeah, go ahead, Zach, sorry. I was just saying, I like the kind of the reframing of what it is. I, I think one of the challenges that many people fall into, I've fallen into is thinking about, okay, well, I have to find time for this discovery phase. I have to find, and anytime you start getting into that, especially with PMs and designers and everybody's really busy, it's it's very easy to drop the ball somewhere. But as you start to think about, this is just part of my day-to-day operating process. Um, like I'm just always going to be doing this. Um, it sort of reframes what we how we should be approaching this and how delivery and discovery are really part of the same process. It's just um, getting better about vetting things so that we, we learn more uh, before we continue to invest down specific uh, solutions that may or may not be the right thing for our customers. Go ahead, Kevin. Um, no, I, I, I love that. Um, it was, it was very helpful to put that in context. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of us are thinking of that, right? Like how, how do you kind of do this while we do the work in, in, and how does it like mentally, you know, I'm trying to figure out, do that jujitsu of, you know, where does this fit within my sprint cycles and the way you're communicating it is not, you know, there, there are delivery uh, practices out there like Agile and Scrum and Kanban and these kind of like systemized um, execution processes. This can be a part of that and, and maybe maybe not. Like it's kind of also this combination of these things and it's, it's very interesting. So I love the perspective there. Um, is there, when you approach a team that are pretty strict with one of those processes, whether they have gone through certifications or like, this is what we do here. And here's our delivery process. Like, is there like, how how do you communicate that? Or how how does this fit into that conversation? So I will share, I have seen good continuous discovery teams use both Scrum and Kanban. I'm not going to get into the wars about which one's better. I will say the one part about Scrum that can be problematic is that a lot of people that follow a strict Scrum process lock down their sprint which means once the sprint started, we're not going to change anything no matter what. Okay, that's insanity. What if you start a sprint on Monday and on Wednesday you learn you're building the wrong thing? Should you really spend a week and a half still building that wrong thing? No, right? So the key here is we can't be dogmatic. Like the value of a two-week sprint is it gives us time to focus and dive into this chunk of work. And we want to respect that. We don't want to be constantly changing the name of the game. But we also don't want to dogmatically build the wrong thing because there's this arbitrary rule. And so I do think the more continuous we get, the more Kanban-like we work, right? That doesn't mean this can't work with sprints. Like I do think a lot of companies 
want to have um, a longer horizon of, of understanding work. Like I think in an ideal world, honestly, we wouldn't need an idea of Kanban or, or Scrum. It would just be this simple. A team would have a teeny tiny opportunity they were working with because they'd been continuously interviewing and they had chose a target opportunity. And that together, that team would explore solutions and assumption test until they solved it. And then they would pick the next one. And like literally all we're tracking is this is the opportunity we're working on right now. And these are the solutions we're working on right now. And however long that takes, that takes. And maybe we time box it to say, this opportunity is not worth solving if it takes more than X days. And if it's taking more than X days, we're going to move on to the next opportunity. That's very Kanban-like because what is that? We're dramatically limiting our work in progress. And I love that part of Kanban. Now, realistically, the other people in our organization want to know what else they're going to get and what's happening next and what happens. Like there's this well, that, se- sequencing of things. Yeah. And that's where I think a sprint concept can be helpful. Sure. We can say, look, we're working on this opportunity and these are the ones stacked up behind it. But we can't lock it down because we want to be flexible based on what we're learning. I love that. And, and I guess to going down that same train of thought, board of directors, right? Like how, how do you communicate? How do you communicate that process? I mean, we're talking idealistic, which I love. Like that's, yes, if everything was, yeah, but yeah. we have this board, they have expectations of what they want to see. And, and actually to add on to this thought or this question before I ask is I, I had a presentation um, yesterday where we presented the product strategy, didn't show a Gantt chart on there. It was yeah. just kind of like painting the picture of where we want to go, what problems we want to solve, what opportunities uh, exist, and, and maybe you know um, the, as vague as possible directions that we can go um, uh, with, with what we're doing. And the feedback, I, I requested a survey from the rest of the uh, employees. I was like, what did you take away? Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of understand if anything landed or what I wanted to present um, or I connected or, or, or had the desired effect. And one of the comments, actually, it was two or three different in, in individuals say, I understand what the product and engineering team are working on the rest of this year. Like what? <laughs> I didn't show you a Gantt chart. Like this yeah. is great. Okay, yeah. so that accomplished that. Would yeah. that same kind of setting or that you know would that suffice for a board or like, yeah? What's your experience with that? It depends. So I, when I was ahead of product and had to report to a board, I always used a now next future roadmap, and I always included opportunities in the next and future column. And I, actually, I usually included outcomes in the future column opportunities in the next column, and opportunities and solutions in the now column. Um, With the caveat that even the now solutions are not set in stone. Um, And here's the thing. Board directors understand the world is uncertain. Like, they get it. They also want certainty because they're humans, right? So we have to manage both. And what you get with the now next future roadmap is you can say, look, I can give you certainty in the short term, but the further we push out, the more uncertainty there is. So this, what I love about the Now Next Future um, uh, format is it really does allow you to fine tune the fidelity based on how near or far you're looking. Um, So just to reiterate that, make sure we get the understanding right, the Now Next Future you have, in the Now you have your opportunities, but also paired with solutions or at least assumptions on which solutions we're going to tackle. Mm-hmm. Next is opportunities purely. And mm-hmm. then you said future is opportunities as well? Or outcomes. Or outcomes. Thanks. Right, because yeah. you might be saying like, look, yeah. right now our biggest problem in the business is we have to reduce churn. And yeah. so right now, these are these are the key churn opportunities we've identified. We're exploring this these solutions. Next, if that doesn't work, we think this is the next churn opportunity. Um, and then once we're done with churn in the future, the next big thing we see is we're going to drive acquisition, right? Amazing. So what, here's what that does. It communicates, I have a strategy, right? It also in the now column paints a picture. They can start to imagine what you might do. And it really does balance both. Now I will share, I have worked with multiple boards and there's always that board director that is like, in my day, I had a Gantt chart, and why can't I have a Gantt chart? And you know what I would tell, especially new executives and especially new founders? You are never going to satisfy every single one of your directors. You're just not going to. 
right? Like that's just the reality. Just like in your company, your executive team is never going to be completely aligned and you're not going to satisfy all your executives. So you got to pick your battles and you got to look at where um, you're going to spend your time. And if I had a director that really wanted a Gantt chart, I would work with that director one-on-one and I would walk through some what-if scenarios with that director. I'd be like, okay, well, based on what we know today, we might have a Gantt chart that looks like this, but let me talk through what might go wrong and why we might pivot and do something like this. So I would still work to build that relationship and make sure that person is getting what they need, but I would not, and I would do that ahead of the meeting so they don't completely derail your meeting. That I feel like that is the biggest gap that gets um, some executive leadership over the hump for buy-in on a product-led growth strategy. Like, I feel like that exactly what you described is the biggest gap. And like, if they can kind of understand that better, I think sometimes on the onset of not being able to, to have that through line to, to how tactically does this work? Basically they need education around this process and how it, how it could be beneficial. Right. And, and what you just described, I think is, is a great tool and way to help them cross that gap and, and get to understanding, but also um, help them focus on the right things um, in general for the business, right? I also think for new founders and new executives, one of the biggest mistakes they make with the board is they treat the board as one entity. And um, this was one of the best lessons I learned as a startup CEO is that if I'm, if I'm telling my board something for the first time in a board meeting, I didn't do my job. And it feels insanity-like making that I have to literally have the same one-on-one conversation with everybody and then do it again with the group. But that's how you influence and that's how you get a group to consensus and that's how you build momentum around things. And so if there's new founders or new executives hearing this and you're literally in a group setting trying to convince your board to be more product-led, I would recommend moving to one-on-one conversations. Build some allies. I love I love the nuance of that. And there's a lot of parallels with, as a product manager, I think one of the keys is learning, how do I get buy-in from my ideas? One of the first things I learned is I should not be going into a meeting with the, the VP of product, potentially executives, and just pitching it and hoping all goes well. Because yeah. they have very different opinions on, even if your goals are the same, they have very different opinions on how you get there. Their perspectives are very coming from very different places. And for good reason. The other thing that can happen, and I think this is probably true of the board, is they might have questions that can derail a whole presentation because it's something maybe you haven't considered because you don't have the lens they have. Yep. And so do, going to the ground and doing the work up front of meeting with everybody individually and like doing some of that work ahead of time helps you better anticipate the questions that will come up, have better answers prepared, or think of think about the types of things you might need to, to speak to so that it doesn't derail a presentation um, and potentially get a couple of people who are already on your side and are excited about what you're proposing. And I found kind of the sentiment of a group, if you have a few people who are really excited, can help the whole group be more on board with what you're presenting versus it kind of just being this chaos. So I, I really like the nuance there. It also improves your ideas, right? Because when you get when you get buy-in one-on-one, you're now able to leverage everybody's individual expertise. In a group, there's often not room for that. So I think it's also, and this is this board challenge is analogous for a product trio as well with stakeholder management, right? I, I talk a lot about you have to show your work. And I actually recommend you do that at an individual stakeholder management level before you talk, before you present it to a group. And it feels so inefficient, but I promise it's faster. The group conversation is just going to be derailed if you start at the group level. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we're uh, um, we're going to wrap this up. And, and again, appreciate your time. And this, was, this has been a great conversation. Um, at the at the end of these episodes, Teresa, usually what we'll do is assign homework to our listeners. Um, one activity or takeaway from the conversation that they can actually apply in their day to day, and then you know I'd love to leave a list section uh, for for plugs. You know where where can people uh, learn and get all things Teresa? Um, so uh, to start, you know, I'll kick us off. We'll go to Zach, and then we'll we'll end with you. But um, uh, my my homework for listeners is 
definitely buy continuous discovery habits. <laughs> um, it's a great read so far. Um, I'm in the middle of it um, and, and I've learned so much. And obviously this conversation has been great for me. So I, I appreciate um, uh, your time and your expertise I, outside of just buying the book. I think one thing you can directly apply to the day to day is get in front of a customer this week, find out a way to do it. Teresa just explained really easy ways to do that. Um, and just do that. So, um, Zach, what do you got for us? Well, you took literally both of my homework. Assignments <laughs> I was gonna give out. Um, so plus one to that. Uh, the other thing I would say is the idea of testing assumptions, I think is often underlooked and very important. So an easy way to integrate that besides like reading Teresa's book and, and, um, spending some more time with it is add a section into each of your product specs as you're like defining opportunities, met- metrics you're looking to drive, write an assumption section, um, and go through the framework in her book about, what are the different assumptions I need to make based on you know, market viability, feasibility of building, usability, et cetera? Um, start doing that. It's a simple, you know, even a couple of sentences within a section on your product spec is a great way to start uh, thinking through things that maybe you were just you know, not giving enough attention to. All right, Teresa, bring us home. Yeah, so I usually tell people the highest return activity you can do is a good customer interview. Um, But I do know if you work in a really fixed roadmap solution first environment, um, it can be easier to start by just story mapping your solution and generating some assumptions. Even if you don't have the ability to test those assumptions, just story mapping and generating assumptions will help you improve the idea. Love that. Awesome. So where where can our listeners uh, find uh, all the things, Teresa? Yeah. So first of all, the book is widely available. Um, It's called Continuous Discovery Habits. Um, You can find it on Amazon. I am quickly joining the anti-Amazon camp. Um, So if you prefer to buy elsewhere, it is available print on demand. So what that means is you can walk into any book retailer and they can order it for you through their order system. So you literally can buy it anywhere. Um, It's available on Apple Books. It's available on Google Play. Uh, so pretty accessible digitally as well. And then if you want to, if you've read the book or you read the book and you want more help putting it into practice, go to producttalk.org. We have a whole bunch of resources. We have a number of online courses. We have this amazing community where people just share what's working, what they're trying, how they're putting the habits into practice. Um, it's literally the most fun thing I've ever created. Uh, so if you want to come hang out with us, uh, check that out. That's at members.producttalk.org. Awesome. Um, and Audiobooks. Are you doing any one of those soon? Or I am going into the studio next month to narrate the audiobook. Oh, wonderful. So there should be a spring release. Great. Yeah. Um, great. Awesome. Well, uh, uh, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, looks like we finished up our coffee, so go level up. This has been Product Coffee. Produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover. And who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.